the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering portions of today's program and producing. He must be exhausted. And Sam Moppin is engineering the bulk of today's program as well. Today we're going to hear a conversation with Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. And the follow-up, his student edition, both published by Waterbrook. And that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We are in the week preceding Christmas. He was born to win our hearts and legally pay for our sins so that we could be born anew through his spirit by believing in him. And that is the focus of this season. I hope it uh, remains your focus as all of the activity that tends to cause us to wander brings us back to the reason for the season. We're going to start today's program with some of the day's headlines. And so to bring you up to date, well, the House January 6th committee voted today to send referrals to the Justice Department, recommending that former President Donald Trump be criminally prosecuted. The referrals include obstructing an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, making a false statement and inciting, assisting or aiding and um, conforming an insurrection. Well, in what is uh, expected to be the final meeting today, the House Select Committee to investigate January 6th said it would formally ask the Department of Justice to pursue charges after a nearly 18-month probe into the former president's involvement and the activities that led to the Capitol breach on the 6th of January 2021. The committee said today that it believes it has significant evidence that former President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transition of power and believes that the Department of Justice can likely elicit testimony relevant to an investigation under a federal statute that bans rebellion against the U.S. government. That statute says anyone who incites or gives aid or comfort in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States cannot hold public office, which is ultimately the goal of the committee to deprive him of an opportunity to serve as president or any office once again. Well, the committee's unprecedented criminal referral holds no official legal weight and a final determination in whether to pursue the charges will be up to the attorney general Merrick Garland and the Justice Department. The committee also referred several GOP House lawmakers, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, Andy Briggs, uh, Scott Perry to the House Ethics Committee for not complying with subpoenas. A spokesperson for Jordan responded to the committee's referral in statement, saying this is just another partisan and political stunt made by a select committee that knowingly altered evidence, blocked minority representation on a committee for the first time in the history of U.S. House of Representatives, and failed to respond to Mr. Jordan's numerous letters and concerns surrounding the politicization and legitimacy of the committee's work, end quote. 
Well, over its 18-month tenure, that committee obtained access to tens of thousands of documents. The committee has conducted nearly a thousand interviews related to the Capitol protests. At Monday's meeting, the committee's members, seven Democrats and two anti-Trump Republicans, each presented a portion of their findings against the former president before taking the vote to issue criminal referral. The former president, who launched his 2024 White House bid last month, was subpoenaed by the committee last month, but defied the panel's request for information. The story continues. Well, it certainly continues for the former president as he faces a week of headlines on January 6th and his taxes. Well, after more than five years of dramatic headlines about controversies, scandals and potential crimes surrounding the former president, this coming week is among the most consequential. As I mentioned, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th breach um, uh, recommended that the Department of Justice uh, file criminal charges. The committee's members uh, debated criminal referrals to the Justice Department in connection with the riot and Mr. Trump's efforts to cling to power. On Tuesday, the House Ways and Means Committee will meet privately to discuss what to do with the six years of Mr. Trump's tax returns that it finally obtained after nearly four years of legal efforts by Mr. Trump to block their release. The committee could release them publicly, which would most likely be done in the final days of the Democratic control of Congress. And on Wednesday, the January 6th committee released its report on the attack, along with some transcripts of interviews and witnesses. Well, taken together, this week will point a spotlight on both Mr. Trump's refusal to cede power and the issue that he has most acutely guarded for decades, the actual size of his personal wealth and his sources of income. The president has spent decades avoiding transparency and evading accountability. So says Tom O'Brien, the author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. Uh, now, both are uh, rushing toward him in the forms of possible tax disclosures and a criminal referral. However much uh, he might want to downplay the significance of all of that, it is momentous. Any public release of his tax information would come as Mr. Trump seeks another White House bid, a time in which he faces multiple investigations without the immunity that the presidency gave him from indictment. The Justice Department is investigating Mr. Trump's mishandling of presidential records and classified materials, and it remains to be seen whether either he or anyone around him is charged in that case. How much new information will be disclosed this week is unclear. Over the course of more than a year and a half, through nearly a dozen public hearings, the January 6th committee has used testimony and information culled from over a thousand witnesses to present Mr. Trump as being at the center of an effort to remain in power and thwart the results of a free and fair election. All of this culminating this week, the week before Christmas. Well, as the Senate voted overwhelmingly on the 15th of December to pass the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, only five Republican senators voted against the measure. Uh, As reported, the NDAA passed the House of Representatives on the 8th of December by a vote of 350 to 80, with 35 Republicans and 45 Democrats voting no. Notable 45 Democrats voting no. The record-breaking defense budget totals $857.9 billion, which is $45 billion more than what President Biden had actually requested. The NDAA passed the Senate on the 15th of December by a vote of 83 to 11, with six senators not voting. Well, the following five GOP senators voted against the defense bill, uh, the budget. Mike Braun of um, Indiana, Josh Hawley of Missouri, Mike Lee of Utah, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming and Rand Paul of Kentucky. Six senators, all of whom are Republicans, did not vote at all. 
John Barrasso of Wyoming, Roy Blunt of Missouri, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Ted Cruz of Texas, Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, and Tom Tillis of North Carolina. And while none of the five senators who oppose the NDAA made public statements explaining their reasons for opposing the bill, uh, many have expressed criticism of the bill's uh, contents or of increased spending in general. Senator Braun told CNS News at the Capitol last week that while he believes providing defense is the most important thing that Congress does, he doesn't hold it sacrosanct. He also expressed his desire to cut spending across the board. On the morning after the NDAA vote, Senator Hawley tweeted, the Senate's defense bill ended up pretty lousy because it failed to do right by our service members, kicked out over the hashtag COVID vaccine and was full of climate garbage, end quote. Well, on the 16th, Senator Rand Paul published a, a commentary in the New York Post entitled, It's Not Just Democrats. <coughs> Republicans are breaking the bank, too. He went on to say it failed to do right by uh, service members. Republicans are breaking the bank, too. In the piece, Paul claims that big government Republicans are really secretly tied at the hip to spendthrift Democrats, end quote. Paul also criticized the final price tag of the NDAA, asking, is adding $45 billion more to a military budget that exceeds the next 10 nations combined improving our national security? And while the National Defense uh, Act rescinds the COVID vaccine mandate for service members, it does not reinstate any members who are discharged as a result of the mandate. Senator Ron Johnson proposed Senate Amendment 6526, which called for the reinstatement of previously discharged members due to the mandate. The amendment failed by a vote of 40 to 54. (coughs) The following four senators joined the 50 Senate Democrats in opposing the Johnson Amendment. Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Mike Rounds. The NDAA now heads to the White House for the president's signature. Well, the FBI pressured Twitter to share user data outside search warrant process records reveal uh, Roth was uh, int- um, intimately involved in the old management's content moderation regime, which Musk has accused of disproportionately center- uh, censoring rather right wing political thought. For example, Roth led the team responsible for suppressing the New York Post's Hunter Biden laptop bombshell. However, records reveal that Roth um, resisted FBI intrusion into Twitter's operations. In December of 2019, a supervisory special agent of the FBI's National Security Cyber Wing, working out of the Bureau's San Francisco field office, asked Roth if the company would revise its terms of service to permit a vendor contracted with the Bureau to access the Twitter data feed. Agent Elvis Chan extended that invitation to Ross to discuss the matter in person with his colleagues. Well, weeks later, Roth wrote a suggested response to a colleague rejecting Chan's offer and taking a firm stance to protect user privacy. As a rule, he wrote, we're not able to directly discuss data licensing relationships with third parties, such as the customer of our data customers, both due to confidentiality reasons and limited information on our end about the business discussions that may have led one of our customers to decline to provide services to the, uh, to the government. We're talking about the latest, uh, latest release of the Twitter files. We'll return in just a moment with more on this most recent disclosure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, conversations with Mark Moore, author of Core 52, 
the 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year, and the student edition, which is updated. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. I was talking about the FBI pressuring Twitter to share user data outside um, search warrant process. Uh, Records reveal in this latest uh, data dump, if you will, from uh, Twitter and its new owner. Well, Roth, who was at the time overseeing this process, referred to Twitter's longstanding policy prohibiting the use of our data uh, products and APIs for surveillance and intelligence gathering purposes, which we would not deviate from, end quote. Well, Twitter, Twitter rather, would uh, continue to be a partner to the government to combat shared threats, Roth assured. But the best path for NSA or any part of the government to request information about Twitter users or their content is in accordance with the valid legal process. So in his favor, at least he made that stand. Well, in early January of 2020, Twitter's then director of policy and philanthropy, Carlos Manji Jr., he urged caution in response to the FBI's insistence about gathering user data. Insistence. We have seen a sustained, if uh, uncoordinated, effort by the IC intelligence community to push us to share more info and charge, rather change our API policies. They are probing and pushing everywhere they can, including by whispering to congressional staff, he wrote to Roth. Well, the sixth installment of the so-called Twitter files synthesized by... um, Tybee broke the news that the FBI had frequently communicated with Roth's team before Elon Musk bought the company. Between January of 2020 and November of this year, over 150 emails were exchanged between the FBI and Roth and Tybee uncovered in this latest disclosure. Throughout 2020, the FBI asked Twitter to search for evidence of foreign influence, specifically accounts linked to Russian entities. On December 24th of 2020, Twitter updated the FBI that it had removed 345 largely inactive accounts linked to previously coordinated Russian hacking attempts that had little reach or low follower accounts. Flash forward to the summer of 2020, the FBI was still nagging Twitter for proof of foreign meddling, such as in a tweet from Senator Marco Rubio, according to an email Schellenberger reviewed. While much of this violates our team's, or rather terms of service, we haven't yet identified act that we typically refer you to or even flag as interesting in the foreign influence context. He emailed back to the FBI. Well, over the next few months into the fall of 2020, the FBI intensified its focus on foreign interference, expecting an influx of propaganda ahead of the 2020 election. On the 11th of August of that same year, Chan sent information to Roth relating to the Russian hacking organization APT-28 through the FBI's secure one-way communications channel. A teleporter, Schellenberger noted, the documents were sent hours before the Post published its first bombshell report on the Hunter Biden laptop. Well, Twitter's public pretense for the uh, blackout of the Hunter Biden story was that it violated the company's hacked materials policy. Democratic figures, including the president, maintained that the report was Russian misinformation until its uh, contents and claims were proven accurate. Well, at a recent conference on democracy in the digital age, after he resigned from Twitter following Musk's takeover, Roth said the FBI trained him in Russian hacking threats before the Hunter Biden laptop breakthrough. It set off every single one of my finely tuned apt 28 hack and leap campaign alarm bells when this story surfaced, Roth said. Well, Elon Musk has asked Twitter users on Sunday Uh, whether he should remain CEO of the platform and vowed to abide by their results. Well, the answer was a resounding no. Over 17 million Twitter users responded to Musk's question, should I step down as head of Twitter? 
the 57.5% voting in favor of his departure, 55.7%, and 42.5% opposing it. Shortly after the results were known, Musk followed up with another tweet. As the saying goes, be careful what you wish. You just might get it. Well, since Musk took over the social media giant in October... He's repeatedly turned to public polls to gauge user support for reforms and immediately implemented whatever course of action the majority supported. In late November, he asked Twitter users whether they favored reinstating former President Donald Trump, who was permanently banned from the platform for violating the company's guidelines at the wake of the January 6th events. In a much narrower vote that drew about 15 million online ballots, Twitter users voted to bring Trump back by a margin of 51.8 percent in favor of and 48.2% against. And although Musk reactivated the former president's account, Trump has yet to return and has stayed active on his own social media platform, Truth Social. <coughs> Musk has also um, far uh, lived up to, or, or at least has so far, lived up to his public polls, asking users last week if he should reinstate accounts that doxed my exact location in real time. Musk abided by the majority opinion. Since taking over the social media giant about two months ago, he's ushered in massive changes in the desperate attempt to make the company sustainably profitable. Among his first moves, Twitter CEO was slashing roughly half of the existing workforce. In recent weeks, Musk has collaborated with journalists, including Barry Weiss and Matt uh, Tybee, to clarify Twitter's former content moderation policies. The Twitter files I referred to in the previous section Uh, session rather as they have uh, come to be known reveal that the social media platform did in fact blacklist and censor conservative voices as well as collaborate with federal agencies well the disgraced former ftx ceo sam bankman freed appeared to doze off during a hearing in the bahamas in which he didn't agree did not agree did not agree to bring uh, to being extradited to the united states He had previously been expected to accept an extradition agreement on Monday. The former billionaire is on trial for multiple charges of fraud related to his handling of the FTX cryptocurrency trading market. Bankman Freed spoke to the judge, Magistrate Shaka Servell, only twice during the hearing, first to greet him and again to confirm he wanted to speak with his U.S. counsel. Reporters say that at one point in the hearing, Bankman Freed leaned back in his chair and had his uh, eyes closed for an extended period of time, one of the court's officials appeared to jostle him awake. A defense lawyer for Bankman Freed told the court that his client was holding off on agreeing to extradition until he'd seen an indictment facing him in the U.S. In total, Bankman Freed faces charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers, committing wire fraud on customers, conspiracy to commit wire fraud on lenders, committing wire fraud on lenders, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and violate campaign finance laws. Ouch. Well, FTX collapsed last month in what was essentially a bank run, with crypto investors all seeking to withdraw their funds at once. In the process, it was revealed that FTX had lost tens of billions of dollars. Bankman Freed resigned amid that chaos. Following the two-hour hearing, Bankman Freed has, uh, was given uh, uh, back to prison custody, leaving the court building in a, uh, a black van marked Corrections. 
Biden's Title 42 open border surge is certainly a great fear for border states and for others in Congress. We know that the influx on Wednesday will be incredible, incredible rather. We felt it was a proper time today to call a state of emergency. Well, so said El Paso Democrat Mayor Oscar Leeser during a press conference Saturday as reality began to set in that a, a crucial Trump era immigration policy would soon expire. That policy, Title 42, which effectively reduced the number of asylum seekers our nation would allow to um, uh, be permitted, uh, deported rather, as a COVID-19 health emergency measure, will expire on Wednesday. And when it does, we can expect the humanitarian nightmare on our southern border to become even more nightmarish. If you think we're exaggerating, you should see the images and some uh, recent footage Breaking a huge migrant caravan with over a thousand people crossed illegally into El Paso, Texas last night, making it the largest single group we have ever seen. The city of El Paso reports Border Patrol now has over 5000 in custody and has released hundreds to the city streets. How bad might it get? Well, consider more than two million uh, migrants have been sent back across our southern border since Title 42 was implemented in 2020. A group of Republican attorneys uh, general tried to avoid this scenario by filing suit to protest or rather to protect Title 42. No dice. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals denied their attempt, which means that only a successful last second appeal to the Supreme Court can save the policy now. Frankly, though, we don't see much hope of preserving uh, if the uh, president wants it to expire and he pursued the expiration of that act. Even uh, rotten presidents are afforded certain constitutional powers. West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin thinks Biden, lacking any other ideas, will ask for an extreme, an extension rather, of Title 42 before it expires. Beyond such speculation, though, Biden has been mum. That's leadership uh, today on our southern border. Uh, if there are any uh, good tidings to be found among the bad news, we might point to a recent bipartisan immigration deal proposed by North Carolina Senator Senator Tom Tillis of Air- and Arizona Independent Kirsten Cinema. That lump of um, Christmas coal, which included a mass amnesty for millions of so-called dreamers, never actually made it into legislative text and now appears to be dead in its tracks. We suspect some GOP senators got a earful from their constituents. All of that said, Wednesday... Title 42 expires and the nation, particularly states along the southern border, are bracing for the onslaught that will inevitably cross over into the U.S. without um, legal means. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to give you a heads up. Tomorrow we have a radiothon with Open Arms International. It's an organization I traveled with on several occasions, particularly in their early days. They rescue children who are oftentimes abandoned for a variety of reasons. We'll tell you all of their stories and give you an opportunity to support this amazing ministry that you might recall. Uh, they were the uh, founders and hosts of the Good Friday Breakfast for many years, reaching out in this community where the founders uh, originated from. That's coming up tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, if you enjoy the ministry of Focus on the Family, we would like to encourage you to share the hope of Christ by making a year-end gift through the Give Families Hope Match Campaign. Each gift to Focus on the Family will be doubled. 
You can help save marriages, equip parents, engage families, advocate for preborn babies and orphans, and much more. Your support is critical to help us finish the year strong and be ready to reach even more families in 2023. You can support Focus on the Family. Click on the link at kpdq.com. Well, here a bit closer to home, Oregon State Senator Dallas Hurd has resigned this week in the middle of his fourth term in the Oregon legislature. Over the next few weeks, local Republican precinct people will nominate their uh, choices to replace him. The Senate seat is one of the most conservative districts in Oregon, and two Republican state representatives share his district. Senator Hurd has already recommended his choice, Representative David Brock Smith, to be his replacement. And big taxes during the legislative week. Lawmakers were in the Capitol holding hearings this week. The Senate Interim Committee on Health Care looked into the progress of a new Oregon Universal Health Care proposal, which may, under one estimate, require a new 15 percent income tax. Also, lawmakers rolled out the first draft of an income tax reform measure, which may lead to a plan to increase taxes in Oregon. That's the slap on the other cheek. Also, a draft of a bill to look at property tax reform was introduced, which follows the theme of raising property taxes as part of another capital proposal being worked on by lawmakers. A judge has suspended Measure 114. He sees the need for more time to determine whether the measure is constitutional. Oregon's liberal attorney general plans to appeal and force the measure to go into effect, even though police districts are universally not ready to implement the new permit system. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops or as questions are ultimately answered that should have been answered before the measure was placed on the ballot, from my perspective. Well, four top resignations in the state. The state elections director has resigned. Um, There's some conflicting media accounts on that. The state alcohol and drug director and ex-NAACP leader stepped down over assault uh, claims. The CEO of the top racial justice nonprofit was forced to step down under scrutiny and new criminal investigation. And uh, Tina Kotek has uh, uh, replaced the Oregon Health Authority director who resigned just a few weeks ago. And finally, in the state of Oregon... Unemployment is sneaking up. Oregon unemployment is increasing, and we'll continue to follow that story to put a little more flesh on that uh, that developing set of uh, ideas. Well, when Oregon Governor Kate Brown commuted the death sentence for all remaining 17 prisoners on death row, she not only spared them from the death penalty in violation of the Oregon constitutional provision enacted by voters, she also purposefully left open the door for these criminals, the very worst in all of Oregon, to seek a legal case for leaving the prison on parole. The Oregonian states, but Brown, who is a Democrat, also left the door open for the individual formerly on death row to seek parole, although it was within the governor's broad clemency powers to block all of the prisoners who received death row commutations from seeking parole. Brown chose not to do so, end quote, again from the Oregonian. Not a single case caught Governor Brown's attention, not the man who killed three children and his wife, not the cop killer who tried to blow up a bank with innocent people inside, not the man who killed a store clerk for no reason, beat another innocent person 50 times with an iron club and then went to prison and killed someone in prison. To Governor Brown, the crime doesn't matter. Only the act of setting people free with no regard uh, with what they have done, how dangerous they are, how much it terrorizes the victims' families, and no matter the death signals it sends to current criminals. (sighs) Future criminals and all of the uh, uh, Oregonians 
that uh, life is cheap and there is no justice in this state. Well, in other news, there's trouble in paradise. The popular Caribbean destinations, high crime rates may threaten tourism in those areas. And an employment bind, nearly 50% of workers are still looking to quit in 2023. And in an opinion, climate extremists think your kids are at a, a high cost luxury. Your children. On the Hill, the January 6th committee held its final meeting and uh, took action against the former president and his allies. Well, time will tell. The RNC chair has updated her support as she faces a challenge, a challenging re-election bid. And farewell, Title 42. The Border Patrol Union president says agents feel completely defeated. And in terms of service, the FBI is facing subpoenas after release of the Twitter files. And on the Twitter files, the trust and safety chief is not comfortable with the FBI demanding answers. Well, placing the blame, ABC host Martha Raddatz falsely claims President Biden never said, come on over, blaming Republicans for the border crisis. Banning Twitterland, Washington Post Taylor Lorenz turned to TikTok substack during her Twitter suspension. Out in the open, border images will be impossible for the Biden administration to ignore when Title 42 ends. So says a CNN reporter making a timely observation. El Paso's mayor has declared a state of emergency due to the immigrant surge. The Democrat mayor uh, from El Paso, Texas, declared a state of emergency Saturday as the COVID-19 pandemic policy. Title 42 is set to expire, as mentioned on Wednesday. The title allowed the administration to enforce border control measures as a means to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. Title 42 was first used by the Trump administration as a means to curtail illegal immigration during the pandemic. The immediate uh, reason for the emergency declaration was the hundreds of immigrants sleeping outside in the cold and the increasing number of thousands apprehended at the border every day. At the current rate of immigration, the number of illegal immigrants crossing the border in the last fiscal year will reach 5 million, equivalent to adding seven new states, Rhode Island, Delaware, North Dakota, South Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. Keisha Lance Bottoms says Biden cannot visit the border because, well, it would mess with traffic. She also questioned whether or not Biden visiting the border would be the best allocation of resources. The Hill responds, White House advisor Keisha Lance Bottoms on Sunday cited the disruptiveness caused by presidential travel as a reason why the president hasn't been to the southern border. A criticism levied by Republicans amid a crisis that's seen a record number of migrants crossing into the U.S. RNC Research points out the top advisor Keisha Lance suggested Biden won't visit the border because his motorcade would cause a traffic jam. Biden has literally never been to the southern border. The latest Twitter files released revealed how the FBI did, in fact, use Twitter to censor speech. And the new mayor of L.A. plans to address homelessness by moving people into hotel and motel rooms. The new mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, said Sunday her administration will start moving homeless people from tent encampments into hotels and motel rooms through a new program that launched Tuesday. An estimated 40,000 people are homeless in Los Angeles. Democrat um, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass says her plan will deal with the city's homelessness is moving people from tents to hotel and motel rooms. For how long? Not entirely clear. Democrats are rallied to utilize the 14th Amendment against former President Trump. Nearly 40 Democrats have joined Representative David Cicilline's effort 
to bar former President Trump from taking office again using a portion of the 14th Amendment meant for ex-Confederates. The Rhode Island Democrat introduced legislation Thursday citing Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, known as the Disqualification Clause, which bans individuals from holding office if they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, which explains why insurrection and rebellion has been used so consistently throughout this this two-year investigation. The bill would need to pass both chambers of Congress with only days before Republicans take control of the House and is substantial end-of-year agenda remaining. Well, the legislation drops as the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol prepares and has released its final report um, earlier today. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, Mark Moore will be my guest in the second hour of today's program. Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year, as well as the recently released student edition that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, if you make seeing the Christmas lights displays part of your holiday tradition, we've got a great resource for you. Go to kpdq.com, click on your holiday lights page, and there you'll find all the information you need for, well, holiday lights, zoo lights, the grotto, Christmas ships, and even holiday markets. We have some fun and festive ideas for you. And I want to remind you as well, the Christmas Mortgage Miracle is drawing to a close. You can enter once per day now through December 21st, which is Wednesday, and complete bonus entries there as well. The Christmas Mortgage Miracle brought to you by Pathways Clinic. Get all the details and enter to win at kpdq.com. Well, the Vatican kicked a priest out of the priesthood for his staunch pro-life stance. The Vatican has defrocked prominent Catholic priest and outspoken anti-abortion activist Frank Pavone, uh, with no possibility of appeal, documents published Sunday reveal. Pavone was a former religious advisor to President Donald Trump and is known for his leadership of a religious organization that strongly opposes abortion. Priests for life. Well, Catholic News Agency says Pavone is still saying masses, including one uh, streamed online Saturday. The Priest for Life website states that Pavone is a Catholic priest in good standing and exercises his ministry in full communion with the Catholic Church. That may change, however. Twitter has banned the promotion of other social media platforms. Twitter will no longer allow users to promote their accounts on at uh, least seven other major social media sites, including Facebook, Instagram, and Truth Social, the platform announced on Sunday. The new policy comes after many users recently began posting links to their accounts on other sites following Elon Musk's takeover as CEO of Twitter and the platform's subsequent reinstatement of accounts, suspension of journalists and mass layoffs. Russian stocks have taken a beating since the Ukraine invasion. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine sent Russian equities tumbling in February. Nearly 10 months later, the recovery looks far off after sanctions uh, triggered an investment exodus and made them the world's worst performers. And while the economy has largely stood up better than expected to sanctions imposed by the U.S. and its allies, the stock market paints a different picture. Russian equities have been excluded from global benchmark and exchange traded funds tracking the country's shares have either been frozen or closed. North Korea once again launched more ballistic missile tests. 
North Korea fired two ballistic missiles toward the sea off the Korean Peninsula's east coast on Sunday. That's according to South Korea and Japan, prompting South Korea's presidential office to strongly condemn Pyongyang for escalating tensions. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the two medium-range missiles flew about 500 kilometers or 311 miles Japan's vice defense minister, Toshiro Ino, said the missiles seemed to have landed outside Japan's exclusive economic zone and there had been no reported of damages. On Friday, North Korea said it tested a high thrust solid fuel motor for a new strategic weapon in the solar facility on Thursday. Experts have said that the development could allow the country to have a more mobile, harder to detect arsenal of intercontinental uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that can reach the U.S. mainland. Argentina has won the World Cup. Argentina won their third World Cup in an extraordinary final on Sunday as they beat France 4-2 on penalties after Lionel Messi scored twice in a 3-3 draw that featured a hat trick uh, from another player as the holders recovered from 2-0 down. Bostonians of the year in a hilarious display of the absolutely obtuse nature of the modern Woke, the Boston Globe included for honorable mention in its annual Bostonians of the Year Award, the wealthy citizens of Martha's Vineyard for tolerating the sudden and unwelcome arrival of 49 illegal aliens for almost 48 hours. Oh, they're right up there with the Patriots. Well, the wealthy island residents, despite having plenty of mansions in which to house those who came um, uh, by the... uh, de facto open border policy were showered with globes uh, praise for sparing some space in the basement of a small church and only for less than two days such a sacrifice to the globe these vineyard residents are heroes for putting up with the unwanted inconvenience and evidently for quickly getting these illegal aliens off their island well the globe then spins the problem of illegal immigration onto who else well the right our system is broken and opportunities are exploiting the crisis We have a Democrat in the White House, a Democrat majority in the House, and a uh, Democrat uh, majority in the Senate with the vice president breaking any tie. And yet, it's the right who's responsible. RFK Jr. blames the CIA for his uncle's murder last Thursday following a segment from Tucker Carlson's show in which he interviewed the CIA insider Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He declared the most courageous newscast in 60 years. The CIA's murder of my uncle was a successful coup d'etat. Uh, from which our democracy has never recovered, end quote. Well, the post was in response to the CIA insider's claim that the agency was involved in JFK's murder. Last week, 13,000 government documents related to the JFK assassination were released to the public. This latest document dump, combined with all the previous documents that the government has released regarding JFK's assassination, now accounts for 97% of all the government's records on the crime. The Biden administration is holding back the remaining 3% of the records, which has only served to fuel suspicion that what um, remains directly implicates the CIA. The administration argued that continued postponement of public disclosure of such information is necessary to protect against an identifiable harm to the military defense. A massive winter storm will snarl Christmas week travel as heavy snow, rain and damaging winds sweep across the country. The Biden administration is seeking to make the citizenship test multiple choice and add new material. 
The GOP plans to release a release rather a 100 page rebuttal to the January 6th committee report. The National Archive is planning to release hundreds of emails on Hunter Biden unless the White House intervenes. The U.S. is buying three million barrels of oil to start replenishing its reserves. And RNC chair Ronna McDaniel says her support is pretty solid as she faces challengers in her reelection bid. A transgender student has been charged for an alleged violent assault on two girls in school bathrooms, two separate incidents. Iran has been booted from the U.N. Women's Rights Panel, finally. And on this day in history, 1777, during the American Revolution War, American Revolutionary War, General George Washington leads his army of about 11,000 men to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, to camp for the winter. 1907, a coal mine explosion in Jacobs Creek, Pennsylvania, kills 239 workers. 1946, war breaks out in Indochina as troops under Ho Chi Minh launch widespread attacks against the French. 1950, General Dwight D. Eisenhower is named commander of the military forces of the North Atlanta Treaty Organization. 1957, Meredith Wilson's The Music Man opens on Broadway. 1972, Apollo 17 splashes down in the Pacific Ocean, bringing the Apollo program of manned lunar landings to an end. 1975, John Paul Stevens is sworn in as an associate justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. 1986, the Soviet Union announces it has freed dissident Andrei Sakharov from internal exile and pardoned his wife, Yelena Bonner. 1998, President Bill Clinton is impeached by Republican-controlled House for perjury and obstruction of justice. He would be acquitted by the Senate. Twenty, or rather, 2002, Secretary of State Colin Powell declares Iraq in material breach of a U.N. disarmament resolution. And 2008, citing, I didn't see that. Okay, thank you. 2008, citing imminent danger to the national economy, President George W. Bush orders an emergency bailout of the U.S. auto industry. 2013, discount retailer Target announces that data connected to about 40 million credit and debit card accounts were stolen as part of a breach that began over the Thanksgiving weekend. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, U.S. health officials approved the nation's first gene therapy for an inherited disease, a treatment that improves the sight of patients with a rare form of blindness. Well, coming up in just a few moments, a conversation with Mark Moore, author of Core 52. There are two editions, the original, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year, and a student edition also released by the title Core 52. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also tomorrow, we're looking forward to uh, welcoming Open Arms International into the studio. Well, you'll have an opportunity to meet the needs of uh, orphans who are taken into their uh, their school and facility housed by parents. It's a really remarkable uh, ministry. I've had the opportunity to travel on three separate occasions with open arms uh, to the facility in Kenya. I've spent some time there. I um, am uh, close friends with uh, the, the leaders of the organization. I'm looking forward to sharing their story and giving you an opportunity at this strategic moment uh, to be a part of this ongoing work. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Did you know that 80% of the people in church want to know the Bible better? 
Surprisingly, the desire may be even stronger in those outside the church. A recent survey in Phoenix uh, indicated that 60% of those who said they were interested in the Bible weren't connected with any church at all. Well, what are the reasons behind that? My next guest points out we're busy and we don't know where to start. For those who want a fast pass to Bible literacy, Pastor Mark Moore, he developed Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. He's a former New Testament professor at Ozark Christian College and now teaching pastor at a mega church called Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. And he takes the reader through the 52 most powerful passages in the Bible. Your personal trainer for spiritual growth. That's what he is. Well, Mark Moore is a teaching pastor at Christ Church in the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. He leverages two decades in a college classroom teaching New Testament um, along with uh, pastoring. And his goal is to make scripture accessible and relevant to people trying to make sense of Christianity. His two worlds of academic Bible study and practical Christian living come together in this powerful new tool called Core 52, a 15 minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here with you, Jody. Well, this is really a fascinating approach to understanding the Bible. And as I mentioned at the uh, start of my introduction, um, surveys indicate that people are interested in knowing more about the Bible, but uh, maybe don't have the time or take the time, or they don't really know where to start. How does Core 52 address those who are interested, um, but haven't uh, followed through with that interest? Yeah, I mean, I think think part of the problem that we've experienced uh, heretofore is that we, we've approached the issue backwards. And, and like, I, I'm at fault for it as a pastor. We've tried to convince people to be interested in the Bible, and they're already interested. We haven't asked the question, what's keeping them away from the Bible, that they're already interested. And as you mentioned earlier, it's a big book, and it's a bold, old book. So if, if somebody just approaches the Bible and says, okay, where do I start? They're probably going to start in Genesis, which is awesome. That's great. But if you're doing like a year through the Bible reading plan, (laughs) it's going to be about February where they get to Leviticus and go, I'm out because I'm stuck. We want to have people get unstuck by simply showing them the pivot passages that have the highest ROI for their spiritual growth. So this is sort of a Bible survey that gives them the the highlights, if you will, that not only gives them a, a better understanding of the the flow of the scripture, its history, the major points, and so on, but perhaps um, builds their appetite for going deeper. Well, absolutely, and I would liken it to the the eighty twenty principle that almost every athlete, almost every CEO uses. Eighty percent of the benefit you get in anything, whether it's a, a, a game that you're playing or a business that you're building, eighty percent of the benefit is in twenty percent of the effort. I just want to point out the twenty percent because, like you said, if someone is successful day by day, they're going to keep going because every day they're uh, they're approaching an idea that has practical applications. So, okay, my marriage just got better. I'm going to read tomorrow. I have a little better insight into how to raise my kids, or I get a promotion at work because I'm living out a principle that Christ would give in scriptures. All of that is incredibly motivating to people. 
Now, this is a really interesting approach because it does make the scriptures more approachable. There are cultural differences. There is a difference in uh, the time that this took place. This is an ancient document. It may be difficult for a contemporary reader to fully understand. Let's talk about the, the approach that you have developed. There's a three-pronged strategy, and then let's walk through how each of these um, uh, seven days a week for 52 weeks uh, pans out. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, to say that you can get the whole Bible in 52 verses is pretty audacious. I get it. But I spent two decades in a college classroom digging deep, and now I've spent nearly a decade in a, one of those giga churches where people are just coming in with needs. I've let those two worlds crash together to say, okay, if I only get 15 minutes a day from you, what am I going to give to you? So step number one, just identify the 52 verses, which done, check that off. The second thing is, as you, as you mentioned, we just need a little coaching. And when I travel abroad, I want to have a guide to just warn me, okay, don't eat there. Uh, here's, here's how you, you know, exchange money or get to the bathroom, whatever you need. With minimal coaching provided in the book, Core 52, most people are pretty independent learners in Scripture. So then the third uh, aspect is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you one, like eight, eight pages for each essay. That's day one. I give you four other days to flex other muscles like meditation and scripture memorization and reading Bible stories and then applying it to your life. So even though you're reading only one essay a week, you actually get four other days of spiritual exercises to build your core. Now, explain for listeners who don't have a copy of Core 52 in their hands, as I do, what the essay is and how that flows for the remaining four days. Yeah, thank you for, for asking that question. But each essay takes the core verse. So, for example, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, we can read that verse, but if you understand a little bit of the insight into how important that verse is, when you read in Leviticus and Psalms and Matthew, all the way through the end in Revelation, you will be an independent learner because you understand the core verse of creation. Every time creation is brought up, you go, oh, okay, I, I see the context and the background of it. How important is um, scripture memorization to having a, an understanding of what the Bible ultimately teaches? Oh, boy, you know, very few people actually memorize scripture. Mm-hmm. I have been studying scripture for decades. I just learned something, Georgine, that blew my mind. When Paul describes uh, the, the armament of a Christian, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, etc., when it talks about the, the shield or, or the sword of the Spirit, it says, which is the Word of God. The particular Greek word used there is not a written word, but actually spoken word. And when we know the Bible, but don't know and are unable to speak it. Now, I'm not saying you have to get every word exactly right, but it, there's power in being able to speak the truths of Scripture, and it is that power that is your only offensive weapon uh, against your spiritual enemy. Now, I described um, Core 52 as uh, something similar to a Bible survey. Can you make a distinction between um, what you provide here in Core 52 and a survey of the Bible in which you look at the poetic books and you look at the historical books and you uh, explain how the Bible is structured? This is not quite that. It's, it's different in terms of its approach. 
That's right. I don't think it's inaccurate to say it's a survey in that Core 52 is going to give you 52 concepts that are the core of the Bible. But a Bible survey treats all of the Bible equally. In other words, it's, it's going to spread the love between the poetic books, prophetic books. I don't. I'm looking practically and pastorally. I know after now 35 years of preaching, I know what verses take people further faster, and I'm going to land on those specifically. So for me, it's not about being fair with each genre of scripture. It's about being helpful to someone who's going, I just, I just need to get my life together. What ultimately is the goal for the reader of Core 52? Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are people who are churched and there are those who are unchurched who have expressed an interest in Scripture but haven't quite made the commitment to dive in. What ultimately is the goal of 452 for each of those groups? I, I would say it's actually almost identical for both groups. I want you to move from curiosity to confidence curiosity about the Bible to confidence in living the principles of Scripture. And as I've observed that we often try to talk people into church, I don't think we need to do that. I think we need to help them live their lives in a way that's healthy and productive. So the short answer to your question is, is I want people to have a better life. I want them to get drunk less, sleep around less, cheat less, lie less, have more confidence have more compassion, have more social justice. And the principles of Scripture lead people in those directions. And as they lead in the direction of God, they're going to fall in love with God. I don't have to broker that deal. Mm. We're talking about the book uh, Core 52. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. But uh, the book provides 52 of the most powerful passages in the Bible, and it's a faithful representation of what the Bible's full message is. And for those who want to whet their appetite and gain an understanding of what does the Bible teach, this is a way uh, to do that that's manageable for people who say, look, I'm too busy and I don't know where to start. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, my guest is Pastor Mark Moore, Core 52. A 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Mark Moore. He's the author of Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. For those who... Uh, want to read the Bible, don't quite know where to start, don't have a lot of time, this is a great way to familiarize yourself with the major themes. Now, some might be tempted to imagine that um, this is just an academic exercise, uh, but you write in your introduction that with the help of the Holy Spirit, you'll make the most of your strategic investment in Scripture to exponentially increase your impact uh, on society. What role do you see the Holy Spirit playing as uh, your readers um, spend time, 15 minutes a day at minimum, spend time studying God's Word one verse at a time, covering the span of Scripture? Well, that, thank you. That actually uh, ties back into the previous part of our conversation. Obviously, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture. I see the Holy Spirit just as involved when people read and interpret Scripture, because Jesus said when, when, the, when the Spirit comes, when the Comforter comes, He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. One of the ways of keeping the Holy Spirit from convicting you is to not know what God has said to you. So the more familiar we are with the template of Scripture and the, the big ideas of Scripture, 
the more the Holy Spirit has ammunition to engage with us where we live, work, and play. So in a, in a conversation with your wife or maybe a, a project you're working on at work, when you, when you marinate in the Word of God, it is in those moments that the Holy Spirit can more readily and quickly communicate to you what God has already said. The Old Testament can be quite a challenge to the contemporary reader. Were there um, elements in the book, were there specific scriptures uh, that you found more difficult to expound upon in this sort of a structure than others in helping your readers understand what the intent of scripture is? Well, actually, not really, to be honest with you. And the reason is, I'm landing on just 52 verses that have your highest ROI and greatest impact. So, what I noticed was I tended to focus more on the New Testament than the Old. And where I did focus on the Old Testament, which and, and obviously the New Testament is still within the Jewish context, when I did focus on the, the Old Testament, it, it typically surrounded and circled the person of Jesus. So, for example, you have to talk about Abraham. Well, he's the promise. The promised seed of Abraham is Jesus. Talk about Moses. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. David, and on it goes. So, if a person is familiar with Jesus, they're going to read the Old Testament mm-hmm. better and more informed because it points to the macro story of God's salvation in Him. Now, for those who spend fifty-two weeks, fifteen minutes a day, um, going through this book, Core Fifty-Two. What do you see as the next step? What do you hope happens after they have become familiar with these core scriptures that cover the essential themes of scripture? Yes, I would, I would suspect that there's going to be a lot of people that are more able to listen attentively to what their pastor is saying. That, that would be a good starting place. Because as I listen, you know, I obviously preach uh, about 14 times a year here at our church. Our senior pastor preaches the bulk of the others. As I listen to him, I get a more nuanced understanding of the study he's put into it than someone who is less familiar with the Bible. It doesn't make me more spiritual or more intelligent. It actually makes me more accountable and responsible. That's one. Another thing I see happening is once someone gets the core, like you've, you, you've, you've nailed some spikes into 52 places of the Bible, you're going to start absorbing a great deal more on your own because you're going you're to see those passages that were formerly quite confusing will, will be much less confusing once you see the larger template of Scripture. Yeah, and I think one of the major benefits is removing the barriers to Bible engagement. As we mentioned earlier, people have reasons why uh, their interest doesn't match their practice, and this is a way to kind of bridge that gap. My understanding is you yeah. originally developed Core 52 as a tool to train new staff members of the church that you are a part of. How did that um, uh, help them to better engage with Scripture in, in uh, Bible study training? Oh, man, it, it not only was it good benefit for their own spiritual growth, but when they started engaging members, so to put this in perspective, uh, our church now has nine campuses across the Valley of Phoenix. Uh, we have been averaging over the year about 35,000 people on a weekend. And so, as you can imagine, there's this flood of people coming in with all kinds of real-life issues. Everything you want to name is coming in. A staff member who is great at loving people but may not have the biblical background, they're just going to miss a lot of opportunities 
to help people with the wisdom and the Word of God. So what I've seen is that our associate pastors, our campus pastors, our, our neighborhood group leaders are just way better at pointing people more quickly to the real solutions to the problems that they're facing. Let's just take the next few minutes, and I'd like to invite you to walk us through one of these chapters that would take your reader 15 minutes to kind of give us a, a sense of how the each chapter is outlined and how each verse is highlighted and the exercise that you invite your leaders, your readers rather, uh, to walk through. Okay, so uh, let's, let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Most of us look at that, Georgine, and go, okay, I get it. God made the world. It's not that simple, actually, because the creation account in Genesis is different than virtually every other creation account in the ancient world. In that, other creation accounts say that matter is eternal and the gods arose out of matter. And that matters. Because like Darwinian evolution, those ancient narratives said that matter is eternal and the gods are temporary or arise temporarily. What the the Jewish scriptures say is that God is eternal and matter comes out of God. So that impacts us in the way we deal with the environment. That impacts us in the way we deal with sexuality, in the way we do uh, deal with finances and family, because if matter is eternal, that's what we point ourselves to and, and, and emphasize. The Christians came along in the understanding of Genesis 1-1 and said, now, wait a minute, it's not just God the Father, but now you have God the Holy Spirit and Jesus, God's Son, involved in this creation account. So, for example... A lot of Christians don't pay attention to Jesus' role in creation. But there he is in Genesis 1-3. God spoke. He is the Logos that created the world. How, so how does that, why does that matter? Because as I'm staring out my window right now across the desert landscape of, of Arizona, a lot of people look at this world and say, it, just, it doesn't matter because it's kindling for Armageddon. No Christian can actually say that if they understand the full impact of the Trinity in the first few verses of Genesis. So what are we going to do about that? Day one, read the essay. And there's obviously a lot more in the eight pages than I can unpack here in 30 seconds. Day two, let's just memorize the verse and let it sink in. Day three, let's, let's read uh, the Bible story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Day four, let's meditate on not one verse, but three verses, like Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the creator. Genesis 1.1, Jesus, the Logos, all things were created through him. Now, day four, or day five, as we apply this, what is one thing that you could do today that would improve the physical creation of the place that you live? To be a caretaker of God's garden. Because of those five days, this is ripe for small group discussions, Mm -hmm. because now I'm not only thinking myself what to do about it, but I've got a community around me, and we think, okay, what can we do to improve our relationship with the environment and the people who are God's children in that environment? 
I also love that you have a segment is called Key Points in which you highlight the major points that you want to make sure aren't missed. Uh, you also have an overachiever challenge where they are a challenge to memorize a second verse. And then the bonus read where you provide resources uh, that may help them um, pursue an understanding uh, more fully uh, based on the principles in this particular scripture. So it's not just a static read and uh, you walk away, but you challenge them to internalize and respond to what the scriptures are saying. Yeah, and Georgine, if your listeners are interested in engaging, they can go to core52.org, see the whole template. There's resources there if churches wanted to do this as a discipleship for a year, or individual Bible studies want to engage in it together. There's lots of videos, and all, all of it is just you know my gift to you. I just want people to get engaged in God's Word, because it makes them better at life. Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. And it's more than just simply reading a scripture. There's so much more to it, as you've you've heard. Thank you so much for making this available to the rest of us. I know your church has benefited, but I think this is going to be a great resource for the body of Christ at large. Thank you. At God's will. Thank you. Again, uh, Mark Moore is a pastor and author of Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, over the past few decades, research has shown that church retention among young adults drops significantly after the high school years. Uh, generational differences and the increased prioritization of digital devices have further decreased students and teens' motivation when it comes to church involvement or faith in general. With a rapidly changing culture, many students have even started to question whether things like faith or the Bible still hold relevance and importance in their daily lives. Well, in his new biblical study book, Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year, former New Testament professor and now teaching pastor Mark Moore, he offers an essential resource for encouraging teens to remain rooted in Scripture and to grow in biblical confidence as they learn to speak to and interact with the modern world. For students seeking more knowledge about the Bible or their, uh, for parents, teachers, and youth pastors hoping to provide a fast pass on biblical understanding for their teenagers, this book, Core 52 Student Edition, takes readers through the 52 most powerful passages in the Bible in order to strengthen teenagers' Christian worldview for conversations, for decisions, and overall spiritual growth. It's an excellent resource. Well, my guest, Mark E. Moore, is a, a teaching pastor at Christ Church of the Valley. His um, uh, his track record for helping students grow in God's Word is off the charts. In the bestseller Core Fifty Two, he has a personal um, was rather a personal trainer for building Bible IQ, and now with his student edition, he's helping young adults build their Bible knowledge. The perfect blend of serious Bible study and practical application. And I'm just thrilled to have Mark Moore with us here today. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, oh, man, it's an honor, Georgine. Thank you. Well, let's begin by talking about the concept behind Core 52. Now there's a student edition, but this is the second edition because your first was very popular. Yeah, and it's actually it's the same content. The, the idea behind this is let's put it in students' hands with student language and student questions embedded in the text so that in their own world, in their own way, they can encounter the same material that adults have been encountering for now about two years. Now, how is this um, best used as personal devotion, a small group resource? What's the best way for students to approach this resource? 
Well, the best way is the way that you're actually going to use it. But here's, <laughs> here's three that I have in mind. Um, I, think, I think most teens, young adults, are able to read the book just as a standalone. But my idea was, since the adult version was already out, I can't think of a better way for parents to disciple their kids in their own living room or around their kitchen table. And it's funny, in the, in the context I work here at the church, our youth pastor and our youth group is ridiculously huge. We have about 2,000 who go to summer camp just from high school. Our, our senior youth pastor is using this with his own son. And he's mm-hmm. saying it, it, there are conversations coming out of this that he could not have had in a different way. Now, I recognize, Georgine, that a lot of parents, but they didn't have the advantage that I had to go to a Bible college or, or to, to teach the Bible, and they might be intimidated to, to do some, a project like this. Look, I'm giving, this is the, kind of the brilliance behind it, uh, a dad or, or a mom could grab the uh, standard edition and have a few extra pages per chapter that their student has. So they just, they just feel, just, you need to stay one step ahead and that allows parents to really disciple their, their teens. Uh, another way it's being used, and youth groups all over the country are doing this, they're just tired of doing, you know, get fluff games with students because students actually are more mature. They don't always act like it, but they're more mature than we give them credit for. And they really mm-hmm. do want to dig into the Bible. Your introduction, which I thought was brilliant, talked about the attrition rate of students post high school in church. It is 70%. That's that's unconscionable. And it's going to get worse with Gen Z than it has been uh, with Gen X or, or um, the, the current generation. The solution is not social programs. It is actually giving students the answers to the real questions. Like we've, we've just been ignoring their questions as if, if you ask a question somehow you don't have faith in God. Mm-hmm. But what, what I'm finding is the students respect serious conversations, even if you don't have the, all the answers, they, they respect the conversation. So this is a way for student groups in, with, with a coach to have a, a serious conversation around the most important text in the Bible. What a tremendous resource for families. Uh, what a tremendous resource for any adult who is concerned about the spiritual formation of a young person with whom they have some influence. Let's talk about how they do that, because you make a promise. If you can carve out 15 minutes a day, five days a week for one year, uh, you can move from curiosity about God's word to confidence in God's word. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, sitting at a desk for an hour a day <laughs> with a uh, with a young person, but um, moving through it through the course of the year and coming out at the other end with a solid Bible knowledge. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a backstory. When I, before the book was ever published, the, the man at the publisher, his name is Chris Sigford, he's a, he's a wonderful person, devout believer. He went on a, a four-week sabbatical and took the book with him before it came out, because he's going you know, to have to publish this book. And he looked at the tagline, build your Bible IQ in a year, and he says, yeah, right. He came back after the month a huge fan because he was a mature Christian that actually did gain insight into the Bible, and yet it was it's deliverable at a like the cookies are down on the bottom shelf with it. This is nothing that anybody can't understand. It's just consumable 
and it takes, whether you're a beginning Christian or a very mature Christian, it will take you further. And so what I, what I love about the student edition is, again, we're giving parents the tools to do this. And at the risk of yammering on here, because I, I, I love the product, <laughs> each chapter has five days of exercises. So the first chapter is when you sit down and read it. That's the first day. The second day of the week, I challenge you to memorize it. And on the, on the website, core52.org, there are videos. Uh, one is a teaching video where I just talk through the content. The other is a memorization video. You can literally watch me memorize it in front of you and make mistakes in front of you. And together, in about three minutes, we can tackle every one of the memory verses. Day three is a story from the Old Testament that both adults and students, the same story, are going to read to say, how does this principle apply in story form in someone's life in the Bible. Day four shows uh, some more connecting dots where the same principle pops up in different passages. The strategy, Georgine, is if, if you can understand the one verse, you now will automatically understand dozens of other verses mm -hmm. that have the same theme in it. The last day is a, is a practical, like, how are, how are we going to live this out? How are you going to apply it to your life? The student edition has an extra element, and that is discussion questions, four, maybe five discussion questions that an adult could sit down with either one-on-one -on -one or in a group setting. In other words, so all the youth pastors uh, out there listening right now, this is a plug-and-play resource that will legitimately take your students through a whole Bible theology in one year in a way that their parents can engage with students. That's, that's a winner. Absolutely. Again, the book is titled Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Now, we're going to need to take a break here in just a moment, but let me ask you, how did you uh, select the 52 most powerful passages in the Bible uh, that you focus on over the course of a year that help to uh, build the IQ of a young person in the course of a year? Yep, two ways. Uh, I taught Bible, New Testament specifically, for 22 years at the undergraduate level. Second, I listen to about four sermons a week. And I have been, I've been doing that for over 30 years. I know what preachers keep preaching on, and they keep preaching on it because it keeps changing people's lives. That is the foundation of how I called these 52 verses. We're talking with uh, Mark E. Moore. He's the author of Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Mark E. Moore. He's the author of Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. I mentioned early in our uh, first segment that research shows that teenagers and the teenage year is pretty pivotal uh, in regard to cognitive and social development. Can you explain the, the importance of encouraging students to engage with the Bible during this particular stage of life and the long-term impact it's likely to have? Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question, Georgine, because uh, the psychologist Piaget actually did a great deal of work on when, people's co when people develop cognitively in different areas. 
It is in the teen years, particularly in, in middle school, where they, they really begin to think abstractly. And that's why you know, all you parents out there who've got a teenager that they like to argue with you, all they're doing is flexing a muscle that they've never felt flexed before. It's, they're, they're not really that antagonistic. And so it's so important as they begin to flex those muscles and reason for the first time in their lives that we respect them in that cognitive development period and give them, give them real, real answers. And if we give them just bumper stickers or, or platitudes, they're going to sniff it out and they are going to leave the church if they don't feel like we are authentic. Mm-hmm. And for this generation of Gen Z, it's authenticity is probably more important than almost any other character trait. So when we as a church, we feel like, oh, we've got we've to gotta protect them if we don't have all the right answers. Or if we can't give a definitive answer about the age of the earth, or we can't you know, talk about gender dysphoria. If we, don't, if we don't talk honestly, both about what we do know and about what we, we can't say for sure, they will know it and they, they will be disillusioned with the church. Now, you spent a couple decades teaching the New Testament to college students. What uh, from that experience helped you to create a resource uh, for the teens that Core 52 is focused on? Yeah, I, so I hate to... I want to be careful how I answer the question because I don't want it to come across as pompous. I, I'm not the best scholar in the world. I, I've been around the best scholars in the world, and I did my Ph.D. at the University of Wales uh, studying in Prague. And so, I, you know, I ran in the fast lane academically. I'm not the best scholar. I'm not the best preacher because there are some that are, are smoother or more clever. They come up with better taglines. But as a combination of the two, that's my sweet spot. I can take the depths of theology, like the, what the big boys are, are, are batting with, and put it in a way that is common vernacular. So because, because I taught for 22 years freshmen, I mean, they're 18 years old. I had to learn how to speak in a way that was clear, but also take them from the, the information they had to a higher level of cognitive uh, processing. So it it was a skill and an exercise that I worked on for over two decades to master deep thoughts in common language. Can you give us some examples of the concepts that are covered in Core 52, uh, which is a one-year program, um, student edition? Yeah, we uh, start with Genesis 1-1, talk about creation. That idea of creation runs throughout the Bible, clear on to Revelation, where we've got basically as a friend of mine wrote a book, Between Two Trees, you've got the tree of life in Genesis, the tree of life in the new heaven and new earth in Revelation. So that concept of creation is not, it is not just that God made stuff. It is that God created a world in which we can know him, an ordered world with beauty and power and fire and anger and compassion. So it's, it's knowing the kind of world that God made. That's, that's the first chapter. The second chapter, I won't go through all 52. The second chapter is being made in the image of God. That you and I have attributes that are distinct from any other animal in the world, but are like God. For example, no other animal tells time. No other animal uses, uh, uses language, at least not in the same abstract way we do. They don't write sonnets. 
No other animal eats communally or decorates a table. No other animal appreciates art. And when you begin to understand the nature of who you are, that's a game changer. Again, going back to students' attrition uh, from the post-high school days in church. When they understand that they are created, special, loved by God, when the difficulties of life arise, if they have grasped that concept, they are much more resilient in a world where they find, oh, there is bullying, there is rejection, there is deference to some people because of their wealth or skin color or their political affiliation. It just makes them more resilient. Another concept that I love is the idea of happiness coming straight out of the Psalms. Another one is anxiety coming out of Philippians 4. Boy, have we needed that this year. Mm -hmm. And here's something fascinating. Uh, Barna Research, because of COVID, they looked at all the demographics and whose mental health deteriorated during COVID. Every single group, save one. It doesn't matter ethnicity or age or economic. There's only one group of people whose mental health improved, and it was only a slight improvement. But again, the only group to improve in mental health over this past year were those that went to church every week. Mm. How about that? Yeah. So yeah. This, it, this does matter. If I was an atheist, I would still go to church every week. I would still read my Bible at least four times a week because the statistics of those who are biblically engaged four times a week or more are startlingly different from those who don't go to church. So if you, do you have any listeners out there that are just tuning in or just happened to, uh, upon the station and thinking, man, I want my life to improve, here's, here's a proven tactic. Read the Bible, go to church. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and follow it, it, uh, what it, you're being taught. It really is as simple as that. Because if you talk about what the scripture says, and again, going back to your question, what does this book talk about? It talks about um, how to pray. It talks about how to read your Bible. It talks about the atonement, big religious word. But basically, atonement is that, is that God saved us through the death of Jesus. Every, and you can fact check me on this out there in the, in the audience land. There is no other religion that says you get to God by what he did for you. Rather, you get to God by what you do for him. And you think about the, the, the mental pressure of that and what that would do to a person's psyche and a, and a person's relationships. If I get to God by what I do, I have to distance myself from unbelievers or those who don't live according to those standards because I can't get drugged down. But, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think in, if, in terms of social justice, reaching out to the poor and the disenfranchised, the, the immigrants and the orphans, the single most important moment in human history was when Jesus touched a leper. Because up to that point, everyone assumed, they knew, that uncleanness was contagious. And what Jesus proved is that cleanness that comes from him is more contagious, contagious than any uncleanness that comes out of the world. It is because of that fact that Christians are able to get out of their own bubbles and, and are supposed to reach out to those who need, as Jesus said, he's, the physician comes for the sick and not the well. 
you make the point in um, Core 52 Student Edition um, that Bible literacy, literacy isn't the problem. It's an opportunity. I think many of us are fearful that young people, and for that matter, uh, the Christian world in general, are, are not familiar with what the scriptures teach. They, they are followers of Jesus, but not necessarily um, familiar with his word. Uh, explain how this opportunity should um, encourage us uh, to use a resource like this one to engage young people. Yeah, thank you for that question. What I've noticed, and this is going back to the genesis of this whole project, mm-hmm. we know that reading the Bible makes such a practical difference in people's lives, the quality of their marriages, their mental health. So I thought, how can we get people to engage the Bible more? I just started paying attention why people don't read the Bible. It's not because they don't want to. It's because the Bible is thick, and so it's intimidating. And even when you do open it, there's a lot in there that you just, I can't relate to. You know, I, I've never met a Pharisee. I don't even know where Philistia is. And, and you know, all, all the big words of the Bible just kind of throw us. What if, we could, what if we could give it to people not and say, you don't have to read every word of every page. Here are the big ideas. Just get the big ideas, and then you'll be comfortable delving in more deeply. Mm-hmm. And I would love for everyone to read their Bible an hour a day. Honestly, I don't. So I'd be a hypocrite if I, if I said that. We live lives. So how can we take a big book and make it small and take a foreign book and make it familiar? That's what Core 52 does in every essay. We take one of the big pillars of the Bible and make it manageable in your real daily life. 15 minutes a day, five days a week for one year. Yeah, we're just about out of time, but I want to just emphasize that you have additional information and free downloadables on core52.org. What resources can students or parents, teachers, youth pastors find there that will help them uh, work through Core 52 Student Edition? The big ones are core52.org, or they could just go to YouTube or um, uh, my, my mind just went blank on the other video resource. Go to YouTube and search for Core 52. You will find a five-minute teaching video for every chapter, as well as a memorization video, three minutes, for every verse we challenge you to memorize. That's the, that's the big one. There's also on the website downloadable questions for the standard edition and the student edition. Those are in the book itself. If someone wanted, they felt like I want to lead a group through this and I really don't know how, there is for purchase a leader's guide that they can find on core52.org as well. We've also got some fun stuff like banners and bookmarks and uh, the 52 verses on memory cards that they can purchase as well. But none of that is essential. The, the big stuff is free. Excellent. Well, Mark Moore, thank you so much for joining us today and for this incredible resource. Thank you. It's been it's a joy to talk about because I know what it does for people. Amen. Again, Core 52 Student Edition, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We want to thank James Blend for producing. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times 
on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.